I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation will continue over on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at P of Charity. That's where you'll find us. Let us know what you thought of this week's Spotlight episode. And we'd also encourage you to leave a review if you're enjoying what you're hearing. That helps us get out to more people. If you think this is important, that is a very helpful thing you can do. Other than that, we encourage you to exercise your principle of charity muscles. Listen out for Lloyd's challenge for some guidance on how to do that this week. And with that, let's get into our conversation with Claire Lehman. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Emil, we often talk about what it takes to employ Principle of Charity. But what do you do when your opponent is uncharitable? And in this respect, our principle of charity personal challenge this week is to try to remember that often it's not the facts you are disagreeing about, but about their interpretation. So if you're arguing about poverty, the likelihood is that you will both agree that there is poverty, but the reasons for why it is occurring may be the largest point of difference. Try to focus on the difference between their interpretation and your interpretation of the facts. Emil, with respect to our podcast today, this is one of our spotlight episodes where we bring on a guest who can shine a light on an aspect of the principle of charity itself. Tell us about who we've got on and what we're focusing on today. Thanks, Lloyd. We're excited to have Claire Lehrman as our guest. Now, Claire is the founder and editor-in-chief of the online magazine Quillette, which has built an international reputation for its free speech advocacy, its political commentary and journalism. And with as many as Two million followers a month, it's become a community for people who feel like like they've been ostracized by a progressive left-wing media that doesn't allow room for differing viewpoints. Claire is also a weekly contributor to The Australian, and she co-edited Panics and Persecutions, 20 Tales of Excommunication in the Digital Age, which was published in 2020. She's been named as one of 10 Aussies who shook the world in tech and media in 2018. It's perfect to have Claire on as our spotlight guest after our last one with Jonathan Rauch. For those who haven't yet listened to the Rauch episode, in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge, he lays out what he sees as the key institutions and cultural norms that have underpinned the enormous advances in knowledge creation in liberal democracies over the past few hundred years, whether in academia, journalism, government policy or the law. He shows us how the rules and norms of our institutions have taken in competing viewpoints, assessed and refined them and turned disagreement into more and more productive forms of knowledge. 
What's great about having Claire on is that, in a sense, she has rejected much of traditional institutions such as academia and journalism. She left university to start up the online magazine Quillette, which has been hugely successful worldwide, encountering what she sees as an orthodoxy in knowledge that's come from the progressive left. And a failure of those institutions, particularly in the media, to support a sort of diversity of viewpoint and scientific rigor she sees as is needed to produce better knowledge. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring what she sees as the problems with traditional institutions and look at the advantages of not just Quillette, but of the online media landscape as a whole, which has given voice to a, a whole range of people who've not been part of the traditional knowledge creating institutions. At the same time, we're going to probe the limitations of this world of online journalism and, and ask whether there's enough rigor to really ensure that knowledge has been improved and whether they run the risk of becoming silos for their own viewpoints with even less institutional rigor. Let's bring on Claire. So Claire, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Principle of Charity. Um, in our last Spotlight episode, Claire, we had Jonathan Rauch on the podcast, and he wrote this book, The Constitution of Knowledge. Now, in it, he outlines the institutions and the cultural norms that have really helped the huge number of different viewpoints and disagreements of our liberal democracy and sort of turn them into productive knowledge. For example, in academia, the scientific process has meant that lots of different theories about how the world works are tested against reality, you know, they're peer-reviewed, and there's a commitment to impartial truth there. And in journalism, of course, the rules and norms around how facts are checked and how sources are verified means that that new stories that emerge have a real claim on knowledge. Now, you know, naturally, none of these institutions are foolproof, but in aggregate, they've created better and better knowledge and are, are far better than the knowledge systems that exist under theocracies or dictatorships where truth is controlled from high or, or tribal warfare, he references, where truth's reduced to sort of whoever wins the power battle. Now, I'm really fascinated by your journey because... You seem to have been disenchanted by both university as an institution as well as traditional journalism, because I understand that you see an orthodoxy of the progressive left, which means that there's not enough viewpoint diversity to be able to produce good knowledge. What, what was your experience with those institutions and what did you find lacking? My experience with those institutions, academia and journalism, is not... I'm not a veteran of those institutions. But mm. What I saw as a consumer of journalism was a gap in the product. So right. I had a particular interest in uh, psychology. I was a psychology graduate student and I noticed that uh, anytime I read an article in a newspaper or a magazine, there were certain analytical flaws when topics that I was interested in were covered. So it was quite obvious to me that journalists, m most journalists, although they're very well trained in writing and mm. uh, fact-checking, that kind of thing, didn't necessarily have a scientific background and didn't have no. scientific training. And so as a psych student, I, you know, I, I longed to read articles that took a more rigorous analytical approach to topics around human nature sociological topics, particularly around gender. When mm. I founded Quillette, I was particularly interested in gender and the, the media industry was not asking the right questions and answering them in an analytical way, which is what I wanted as a consumer. And so because I saw that there was a gap in the market, I decided to found a magazine to, 
to fill it. And the people who I asked to write for me were academics. They were psychologists and uh, other researchers um, who come from a more quantitative background rather than the humanities type background that is more prevalent in either journalism or the arts. So it brings the science more to some of these humanity topics. Yeah, that's right. Where humanities doesn't often have that scientific rigour. Did you feel that there was a sort of orthodoxy at the university which didn't allow for the sort of viewpoint diversity needed to be able to argue things out in a more rigorous way? Is that one of the issues you faced? To be honest, I I did not come across a great deal of orthodoxy when I was at universities. But I I had friends who were in universities in America who told me that they couldn't look at the questions that my professors were able to look at here in Australia. So I think we've got to separate, when we're asking this question, we've got to separate out Australian culture from American culture. American culture is a lot more, uh, at least in the universities, it's it's, it appears to be more politically correct than Australia. But that, it might have changed. I haven't been in university for 10 years. I mean, the social sciences in general are trying to bring a rigorous scientific worldview and set of tools to questions of human nature and the humanities in general. But it sounds like you thought that they'd fail to do so in academia, whereas you thought that in your endeavours with Quillette, you'd be able to solve some of the issues you saw in the universities. That's quite a that's quite a big call to suggest that the social sciences are somehow failing to be rigorous enough. There's a big difference between a discipline like psychology and the humanities disciplines. So when I, when I first went to university, I studied English. Hmm. And this is where I came came up against this sort of politicisation of scholarship. I felt when I was studying English, I felt that it was more about indoctrination rather than exploring and discovering the truth. Mm. Then I switched to psychology and, and I found it completely different. I found that we were trained to follow the data wherever mm. it would lead and that it's actually a good thing to contradict a hypothesis that you might have. We, mm. we were trained to correct ourselves and each other when new data, when we came across new data. I didn't receive that kind of training when I was an English undergraduate. Mm. And so I just, I found these two different worldviews quite stark. When I was doing English, it's like training as a, as a priest. Like here is this special knowledge. We, we impart this special knowledge and then you are, are a holder of this special knowledge and you go out into the world and you shape the world. Whereas in psychology, although psychology has its flaws and there's a replication crisis and so on, um, we were at least encouraged to contradict ourselves and question our own hypotheses and just search for the truth no matter where it took us. So I, I, I yeah. found the different worldviews quite stark and one appealed to me much more than the other. I was on the English side at university doing a master's in English and a lot of the cultural theories stuff and as well as law, but... You're right. It was uh, it was theory and ideology first, and you know, yeah. no one really discussed evidence. That was seen as somehow yeah. uh, a little boring, maybe. But it, so it sounds like it wasn't so much the university itself, but the translation from the universities as an institution in those subjects like psychology. I imagine you put economics in that same category into the world of uh, journalism yeah. and into the media, mm. where the media then took their own lens and read what they wanted into some of the 
uh, more nuanced psychology and economic studies and maybe, you know, uh, censored out what they didn't want to see and beefed up what they did want to see. How, how does that relationship work between the academy and the institutions of the media? To be successful in journalism, one has to be able to write and to be able to write, you know, often you will just naturally go into the humanity subjects that allow you to write and develop your essays and think mm. in that mm. uh, kind of qualitative manner. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But to get the kind of statistical quantitative training that comes with psychology, you have to push yourself to learn something that you might not naturally be good at. So the journalists that I know, they're all wonderful writers, but without that statistical mathematical training or quantitative training, they might not have the tool, the best toolkit to be able to unpack and understand what I think are some of the more pressing empirical issues. Like a lot of, a lot of the sociological issues that the media industry tries to cover require looking at data. And mm. unless one ha comes with the intellectual toolkit to be able to look at data, I, I don't think that, you know, a very good product is going to arise from that. Yeah, and there are less and less qualified science writers and writers who have that non-humanities background, science mm. background, but you need big institutions of media to be able to afford the depths of, you know, to have science writers yeah. who have that sort of background and understanding. How does Quillette solve the issue? How do you, how, how have you managed to, or how do you try to solve the issue that you saw in mainstream journalism, which is incredibly well-funded, has a lot of resources, even though it might be less than times previously, but how are you able to do that in a small organisation? Well, I don't think we have solved the issue, but one thing I've learned over the years is that a lot of the problems that I saw in media when I started are an artefact of the challenges of the business model. So it's very difficult to make money in media when you're a media institution without generating fear and uh, adhering or promoting some kind of narrative. That's what I've learned over the years and it doesn't really matter what kind of narrative you're promoting or what kind of fear you're promoting. If you don't promote fear and a narrative, you, don't, you, can't, you are not going to be financially successful. That's what I've learned. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're mm. left, a left-wing media organization or a right-wing media organization or a centrist media organization. Those are the two drivers of success. Mm. What we've tried to do is we have a very lean business model and I do try to consult with a lot of experts and I do get a lot of academics writing for us who aren't employed by us full-time but they will just contribute either as editors or as essayists. So we do have a broader pool of talent that we draw upon mm. and I do uh, allow for more technical writing at times, long-form writing. Most of our essays are quite long. Like It's rare that we publish anything under 1,200 words and we also just don't focus on the traditional metrics that are associated with success. So we don't look at I don't check page views very often. Mm. I don't check how, how much traffic we're getting because I don't think that's a reliable metric for quality because often poor quality journalism will go viral mm. or inaccurate journalism will go viral. And so if we're checking, if we're constantly checking our traffic statistics, 
that it's, it's not a reliable indicator of, of the quality of the product we are putting out there. Claire, you, you clearly want to focus on the science, on the facts, as well as accommodate you know, enough different viewpoints to ensure that you're getting to the truth. But you've talked about the pull of the marketplace as a, mm. as, as, I guess, a pull towards more polemical articles and ideas that grab attention and therefore can be more easily monetized. How do you ensure that you don't end up becoming another version of intellectual conformity, albeit with a different uh, opinion? How does science not then get drawn into a new ideology? That's an important question, and I don't have the answer to it because I'm still learning. It's it's Running Quillette is a, is a process in and of itself. But one thing I've noticed is that just because one isn't embedded within some kind of progressive community which is affected by groupthink doesn't mean you're going you you're you're immune to other types of groupthink so my industry the the alternative media industry or online media is heavily skewed to the right Mm. so if you go onto youtube you know youtube channels politically skewed to the right on twitter these days political influences i would say skewed to the right it might i think in the Mm. past that political influences were much more on the left. We, I might just be noticing a silo effect. You may be, you know? yeah. I think like, we all <laughs> we all feel like we're 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 affirmed in whatever social but, media bubble we're in. But my my industry where I'm situated now has right wing groupthink, and uh, it is it, it can be quite oppressive. It, you, you wouldn't believe this, but during COVID. It was actually a challenge for me. Well, it wasn't a challenge for me personally, but some of our audience got very upset with me because I was pro-vaccine. Uh. So if you chat, so if you're not part of sort of a mainstream progressive milieu, uh, and you don't constantly affirm sort of progressive dogmas, you can be perceived by people on the right as being right-wing and conservative. I mean, I have no problem with conservative ideology and I would be, like on lots of issues, I would be I would be a conservative, not on every issue. But when it came to the, to the pandemic and issues around the pandemic, because I agreed with mainstream science and I didn't, I didn't question, you know, vaccine efficacy, uh, I was sort of viewed as a heretic that's so interesting because you're saying that the whole space of Colette is devoted to essentially understanding mainstream science and not uh, perverting it in the with, within the views of certain ideologies. But your your viewers, like everyone, mm. you know, wanted to use uh, scientific facts as a basis for you know read read through the lens of their own opinions, and that's a danger to both sides. I guess it's probably the reason mm-hmm. we started principle of charity is just recognizing that no matter where you fall on the spectrum of of viewpoints uh you never fully understand your biases unless yeah. you come across other viewpoints that's the best way to bring what you feel in relief i know lloyd's going to have some fun asking you some some questions about that and i remember claire chatting with you about a year ago when i saw you um mid-pandemic and asked you about the credentials of the writers at Quillette and what experience mm-hmm. they have as either journalists and experts. And I remember you gave me such an interesting answer, uh, which really called into question what you called credentialism. And, you know, most institutions have a whole system of credentials, a way of signalling one's seniority as a trusted expert, one's right to speak and comment on certain topics. 
you know, if you're a professor of economics, a specialist doctor, epidemiologist, whatever, you've done the work and are recognized as an expert with a standing to be trusted. But you called into question expertise itself and the value of credentials. What do you see the limitations of credentialism? Well, that, that's an interesting question, and I, I may have a more nuanced perspective than I did back then. So I think on certain issues, we really do need expertise. However, on other issues, I think, you know, th- there can be more fluidity and flexibility. Certainly when we accept essays at Quillette to publish, uh, we don't care about a person's credentials if they're offering up sort of a uh, a narrative or some kind of personal testimony or just an observation of the world. If someone were to s- submit an article that was challenging the science of vaccines or something like that, obviously we're going to be looking at credentials. There's sort of like a hierarchy of topics. The more empirical and the more scientific a topic is, obviously the more scientific training is required. So I wouldn't say that credentials are not important entirely, but I think that when it comes to assessing the literary value of of someone's essay or just the prose style or even the coherency of an idea or an argument, Credentials are not necessarily essential for that. And you did, as the online world can do, open up a space for voices who haven't been, in, you know, haven't been admitted into the the sort of canon of experts. Oh and yeah, that, of course. That can be good, but then you still have the question of how do you ensure you don't just end up becoming a worse version of the institutions that you see a problem with? Like, do you adhere to the norms, the codes of ethics that good journalism does? Do you think some of them? are outdated, what works and what doesn't work? And how do you avoid not falling into the trap of having less experts just talking about things rather than (laughs) worse experts? Yeah. Well, a a strategy we have is to try to be less polemical. So if you go to our website, you you won't find very many polemical essays or op-eds. And, I, I mean, another organic strategy has been that we're not a company that exists. We're, so we're an international company. We're not a company that exists in, in, in a local culture within a particular city. Right. So if you go to New York, the New York, the people who work at the New York Times will all exist in the same social circle. Mm. If you go to London, the people who write for the big publications in London will all exist in the same social circle. So you've got people who work together professionally, but they also are friends. And now there's nothing wrong with being friends with people who you work with, but it, they can uh, conflicts of interest can arise. And the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems I see with journalism is nepotism. Mm. So <laughs> a lot of people get jobs because of who they know and the editors that they can suck up to and so on and so forth. And so we try, we try to be meritocratic at Quillette. It doesn't matter, like, it doesn't matter who you know. If your article, if your essay has a coherent argument and is written well, it doesn't matter if you, if you aren't friends with one of us, we will still publish you. And so we try to skirt around some of that corruption that creep has crept into the industry in the bigger cities. And I think we've been quite successful in that because some of the most successful writers that we've published have been very young, have not had university educations, and then have gone on to be discovered and published and have gone on to do much larger projects because they've 
been published by us first. Mm. Mm. I mean, you've you've described yourself sometimes as a classic liberal and other times as a conservative. And I like the idea that, you know, you don't need to be consistent with everything. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, you sit in different boxes and a third person in box A believes this and this and this and this on every single issue. But I'm interested in your conservative side here. How would you describe your vision and your version of conservatism? And, and if you were going to pitch it to the left, how would you sell the benefits of conservatism? I'm not naturally a conservative, so my temperament or my personality is quite liberal. I'm high in a personality trait called openness to experience. But as I've grown older, I have come to appreciate the wisdom in some conservative ideas and conservative philosophy more generally. And I suppose the the, the way that I'm conservative is that I'm suspicious of radical change. I'm Mm. not against change, but I'm suspicious of revolutionary change. So I have an allergy to to revolutionary rhetoric, whether it comes from the left or the right. And at the moment, the right is engaging in a lot of populist rhetoric, which I find alarming and worthy of pushback, serious Mm. pushback. Because fundamentally, I think that You know, we have institutions that are precious, that have created wealthy societies and prosperous societies where we can all have uh, pretty decent standards of living and we just want to, our duty is to preserve that for our children and not Mm. wreck it. Mm. We can wreck it in many different ways and it's certainly, you know, all sorts of political ideologies can come along and... uh, provoke people to sort of disrupt society and also in different, you know, Trump is a good example of someone who is a wrecker and, and the yeah. people who follow Trump, uh, you know, they, they're on board with the revolutionary rhetoric. And, you know, I see that as a huge threat and that's how I'm conservative. When, when I say conservative, I'm not suggesting that I'm right wing. <laughs> it's just that I want to conserve the society that I live in for my children. I guess we realise it's much easier to wreck things than to build things. And once they're yeah. wrecked, it gets very tricky to build them up. Just thinking about what a well-functioning media landscape would look like and getting your opinion on it. I mean, do you see it as a large, deep-pocketed publications that aim to be a broad, objective church, uh, investigating, weighing different bits of evidence to bring out the truth? Or is it smaller groups of diverse, more opinionated publications that form communities of belief? What would it look like if you thought, this media landscape's really working. It's really um, producing good knowledge. Well, I think that if our big publications had more resources, that would be a good thing. I do, I'm not against mainstream media. I'm not against the established institutions that we already have. And they are suffering under the challenges of the business model because of internet disruption. And I think more money for more investigative journalism would be a wonderful thing. Yeah. At the same time, I think little startup outlets, little magazines who have highly opinionated, passionate people writing for them, I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing as well. I think diversity, breadth and depth is a good thing. So we want a, a wider range of voices and then we want more depth in terms of resources that can be allocated to journalism. Mm. And, you know, I'm pretty optimistic when it comes to the media industry I think there's been quite a lot of innovation in the last 
five, seven years since I've been doing Colette and I'm much more positive and optimistic about the industry now than I was seven years ago. Yeah, we could just be at that cycle of a new technology coming through where the rules and norms haven't yet settled. And Exactly. I've shied away from focusing too much on your concerns, the specific concerns about this, the progressive left as you've talked about in other forums and and I wanted to focus more on journalism and in the institution. But I want to take a minute to look at this challenge from the left, which you do so fight so hard to counteract. Specifically, let's look at identity. And there seems to be a tribalism of identity politics, which reads social interactions through this prism of racial, gender, sexual, other identities. There's also the way that identity groups themselves have become the dominant way for many people to see themselves rather than as, as individuals, as citizens of a country. Now, we know that humans are wired to be tribal, but what do you see as the main issues of the group of beliefs that fall under identity politics? I think the problem with identity politics is that it makes us focus on our differences rather than our similarities. And if we want to live in harmonious, cohesive societies, we've got to focus on what unites us yeah. rather than what divides us. Gender is not as salient an issue today as it was when I first started writing. But when I first started writing, feminism was a very ascendant ideology. And there was all sorts of uh, narratives being pushed around, you know, the patriarchy and men oppressing women and so on and so forth. And I just thought at the time that it was untethered from the data to begin with, but it wasn't these types of narratives and this type of rhetoric was not conducive to healthy relationships between men and women. Mm. Now, you can extrapolate the same principle to uh, racial identity politics. If we're constantly focusing on oppression of one particular race, then we're, go we're going to be thinking more about our, difference our differences between races and that cannot that is never a good recipe for a cohesive society. You want people to forget about race altogether, really, rather than focus on it. Now, the left will argue that only in acknowledging past injustices and recognising that past injustices are, are still apparent today and affect, are, are affecting people today can we move on. I think that's a valid argument. I think that there's a lot of legitimacy in that argument. But at some point we've got to move past race. Otherwise, hmm. we're going to get more and more of the white uh, racial identity politics that, you know, is growing in places like the United States. Um, there's the issue of a backlash that hmm. I worry about. So I come from the point of view of this conservative position where we don't want to wreck society. We don't want to provoke a backlash by these aggressive, progress, aggressive identity politics ideas, I worry about white, white nationalist identity politics uh, growing as a backlash to sort of progressive yeah. identity politics. Yeah, there's no doubt that's a worry. There's also this sort of interesting feedback loop, isn't it, where the reality of disparities in, in income and ability to flourish between races, you create an ideology that can explain it. And as you say, you need to recognise the differences in groups in order to explain it and help ameliorate it. But sometimes the ideology then feeds back into your view on reality on how you see yourself and suddenly you find yourself further apart because the ideology affects how we think about the world and how we think about ourselves and how we get that balance right between being led by reality and then the effect of an ideology feeding back into reality 
is, yeah. I guess, a complex one which you battle with in Quillette when you look at the science and try to understand mm-hmm. and interpret the science yeah. and go, you know, we need to be tethered at least in the first instance to as much of reality as possible before we yeah. we move off with ideologies that, that might take us in the wrong direction. That's another way of looking at it. And I also come from the point of view of being a psychologist. So I didn't finish my master's, but I nearly did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I trained as a psychologist. So I'm very well aware that if you're trying to help someone in their life, the last thing you want to do is make them feel like a victim. Mm. So if you're a clinical psychologist, a lot of what your job entails is helping people step outside of a victim mentality because it's Mm. self-defeating. When people Mm. feel like victims, they don't look after themselves as well as they would if they didn't. They don't see opportunities that exist out there in the world. They don't see the abundance that is inherent in the world. Their perspective is coloured by pessimism. And so having a having a victimhood mentality or an internalising a victimhood mentality is extremely bad if we actually want to help people thrive. And so I've seen that kind of mentality pushed on women to some degree by some, not all, but some forms of feminist rhetoric. And I... I've reacted strongly against it because as a woman I know that, you know, I have to be able to see opportunities existing out there. I have to be able to see opportunities to take them. And if I think the world is somehow against me and that I'm being oppressed all of the time just because of my gender, something that's out of my control, the way I live my life will be quite different. You know, I don't think I would have taken advantage of the opportunities that I would have. The psychology lens, victimhood is not a place of agency, not a place where you can really live your life to the fullest. At the same time, not recognising that you're a victim, if you are a victim, can be incredibly damaging. That's right. I'm going to ask you just one last question then hand over to Lloyd, but you talked about feminism there, and I'm interested in whether you see yourself as a feminist and how you think about feminism in the context of its changing nature over these last decades. Do you think it's helpful or relevant to be a feminist today and, and what would a conservative feminist look like? Yeah, no, I actually do think of myself as a feminist. I, I went through a phase where I was critical of what I saw as orthodox feminist, orthodox feminism, but I definitely am a feminist. And over the years, you know, my views have changed or maybe they have softened a little. I used to be sceptical of this claim that uh, the internet was a dangerous place for women and it was full of misogynistic abuse and that kind of thing. But since I uh, experienced it myself, I'm less sceptical of that claim. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as a working mother, I'm, I'm very well aware of the challenges that women face. I query or I'm sceptical of some of the main feminist Claim. So I would I would question something like the gender pay gender pay cap being the result of patriarchal oppression. And I would argue that gender pay gap is because women have children and we are more involved in early childcare. So like I would just question some of the the empirical claims and the variables that go into these empirical claims. But you know, my, ch- my views change over time and mm. I changed my mind quite a lot. And as I, I said, I've been, I, you know, I've suffered misogynistic abuse, so I'm more sympathetic to some aspects of feminist rhetoric that I would, was potentially more sceptical of in the past because my experience has changed. And the gender pay gap's a great example of something where you can work it out through 
a lot of studies and a lot of sort of rigorous economic and scientific analysis. But when it gets moved into the world of the media, it's really complicated to be able to disentangle the reasons yeah. for there being a pay gap. And then we land back in Quillette. So thanks so much <laughs> on my side. And I'm going to move over to Lloyd to uh, challenge you in other ways. Thanks, Emil. I appreciate it. And next week, Lloyd is going to dig into all the controversy around Claire as a personality. Is there a theme? Is there an area where they're just instinctively rejecting you as Claire Lehman and they're just being uncharitable? It's, it's funny, you know. I've been called a Nazi so many times, both from people on the left and the right. On the Couch with Claire Lehman, coming up next week. See you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.